Welcome back, creeps. Hey, y'all. How is everybody doing today on Sunday? That was my knuckles, by the way. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, Merry Sunday, everybody. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to follow that up with something. Sorry. <laughs> no, this is, the, this is the bit of back and forth banter that we have. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, okay. Um, so how's your week been? Yeah, pretty good. Um, honestly, I can't really remember that much of it. I think it was pretty chilled out. Mm. Um, Mine was pretty chilled out too. I think the thing that kept me going was just like the reminder that it's November, it's the holidays, and I really dig that time of year. And like the change in the season, it's like we get to bust out our cozy clothes and shit like that. Yeah, you were going around in your Mickey Mouse pajamas that <laughs> my two little sisters got last year. Basically, right? yeah. That was cool. Um, yeah, I mean, this week, what's actually, first and foremost, thank you to everybody who reached out. We got like a handful of messages from people after listening to last week's episode, just saying mm. like, you know. You suck. <laughs> <laughs> no, like. People pointing out when I was just saying that, like, I was really depressed for a little while. Mm -hmm. And I definitely on the on the turnaround point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right now. Um, but yeah, a lot of people were just saying, like, good for you to talk about it. Appreciating how supportive you were in terms of, like, if weekly creep is too much, like, just mm -hmm. stop it. Yeah. And then other people, like, specifically Claudia, actually, as well, <laughs> reaching out and offering to help mm -hmm. with weekly creep. But... I was trying to say, like, that's not actually the issue. Yeah. It was my silly little brain playing tricks on me. Mm. And other, like, you know, outside things coming into play. But I just thought it was really nice mm. for everybody who did message. And, uh, yeah, like, we appreciate that kind of thing. We do. Mental health is very uh, important. Yeah, I feel like we talk about it constantly. Yeah. I mean, it's as, it's as important as eating and breathing. Pretty much. Yeah, just keeping it in focus. And from there, anyway, yeah, then today we just had a great day. We did our own little thing. Like today I woke up, it was nice and cold, it was rainy. And like, so I was up until three o'clock this morning doing this. Oh, that's how long you were up? Yeah, well, it was about half three when I got into bed. Oh, wow. Um, And I've had a few nights like that this week. Mm. So I didn't get up until 11, but I also didn't feel too upset about it. Yeah. And then it was like nice and pissy and wet, so I... Got my raincoat on and went for a walk in the park. Saw what I thought was an alligator and almost shit myself. <laughs> and you had a nice afternoon out with your friend. Yeah, I had. Uh, I went out to lunch with my best friend. I have two. Uh, I think I might have seen somewhere where they're like, adults just don't have best friends. And I just don't think that that's true. That is a lie. That, that, that is a lie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, I think that's like, I mean, whatever. Like, if that's what you think, that's your gig. But um, I for me, because like my childhood was so rocky, maybe it's maybe it's because of that. But I like to keep things from my childhood that keep me feeling like a kid inside. Yeah. Like I really like to dive into video games and shit like that. And like the idea of dishing out with a best friend and like having like, you know, like th those little small things. Yeah, I think they're important. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that's a huge reason is why why I'm like 
really enjoying decorating for the holidays, mm. even though I'm not going too big with it. Like our living space is very small. So we have to be, well, I have to be very creative when it comes to what we can implement in our house and what we can't. Yeah. Like we are limited on floor space, so we can't have a tree. <laughs> and we also have two cats. And we have two cats. So I made one out of a triangular shaped piece of furniture that we already have in the house. And that's our tree. And like my mom has these plant fixtures like um, attached to the walls. And so I just threw ornaments on that. And we have this, this, uh, <laughs> what I didn't realize, we're going to stick my wreath um, onto the door, but we couldn't get the door Oh, yeah, thing the door is too so thick. Was, my girly little hands couldn't do it. Okay. So I was like, wait a minute, we have this random nail sticking out of this wall, so let's stick it there. And now it's <laughs> hanging there. The absurdity of that fucking nail. <laughs> <laughs> One less thing for me to worry about. But yeah, I'm glad that the nail was just happened to be in the wall hanging out. Yeah. But anyway, so back to my, my lunch with my best friend. Um, I really fucking love. See, I feel like they both like give me, they nourish me in a specific way. You know, they both nourish, they nourish the best friend, right? Necessity mm-hmm. I have. But like they each one. Like, it's almost like they have specialties or something. Like, it's their superpowers, you know? Yeah. But this one for me, um, it comes, when it comes to, like, spiritualness and really, like, out, like, what, I, I guess, like, we really like to be open with each other when it comes to anything. And, and I mean, like, from A to Z, you know? And that's because we have very similar views when it comes to spiritualism and she like expands my mind when it comes to that. And I fucking love that, you know? So I, I really cherish the time that we spend with each other. Yeah. We don't do it as often because I feel like we're both in like, well, I think that's the adult part of it. Yeah. Well, I I think the adult yeah, that and that kind of sucks because the reason why we don't is because work is so exhausting. I mean, I was thinking about it the other day and it's like you work eight hours, right? But if you have an eight-hour day, you're technically in work mode nine hours because half an hour to travel there, mm-hmm. half an hour to travel back, right? And then you have maybe an hour or an hour and a half to get ready. So that's nine and a half, maybe 10. So you're dedicating, you're dedicating 10 hours to just work alone. Just, you know, like getting ready to work, transporting to and from work, being at work. And if you're lucky, you have maybe six hours (laughs) of sleep, seven hours of sleep. So that's like 16, 17 hours out of a 24-hour day, you know? And what do you have left over? The weekends. <laughs> um, so it's like, I don't know. No, it's, I know what you're saying. I it's just like exhausting. try not to think of it like that because... So the reason why I think it's important to think of it that way, why it's important to keep it in focus is because 
like me, I get in this mindset of like, man, I feel like I never have the time or man, why can't I do more? Why don't I have the energy to do more? Well, it's because our work days are so physically and mentally demanding and sometimes, unfortunately, emotionally demanding. So like, I just feel like keep this in focus because what we really should be doing is giving ourselves a little more credit. Yeah. For the things that we can do. And that's not just me and you. This is our listeners and everybody like involved. Yeah. Yeah. So this is us- why this is why I'm verbalizing. Yeah, this. no, no, no. So I that, know, I know. So I know. that everyone understands. Yeah. So whatever you're doing, if you're driving the car, stop. Give yourself a pat on the bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go go buy that fucking cup of that four dollar coffee or whatever Four, it is yeah the fuck you want because you deserve it <laughs> god damn it <laughs> um right give us a tarot card yeah yeah give us a goddamn tarot card but yeah and and i did just want to say yeah thanks to everybody who reached out um yeah all right so today's card is the page of wands this is a funny card because, um, like, when you're pulling tarot and you're wondering if he or she or they is, are they toying with my emotions? Are they just taking me for a ride? Or are they the one? If you do a reading and you pull a page of wands, they're just a player. <laughs> nice. It's just a part. <laughs> that was my chair. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> My chair makes all sorts of noises. Um, that is the fuckboy of the tarot. The fuckboy of the tarot. Yeah. All right. So today's message. Today is a day for following your excitement. Do something new that ignites your curiosity and invites your creativity. It is quite likely that a little fear will come up as you take these new steps, but that's all part of the fun. There are endless possibilities for each of us in this crazy world. Start expanding your horizons. So you see why that's like the fuck boy. That could be the fuck boy. Yeah. I like the sound of that one though. It's yeah. not quite positive. Mm-hmm. And this week's episode is sponsored by Magic Mind again. Pew, pew. Thank you, Magic Mind. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> um, so yeah, like we were saying last week, like the benefits are just, it's all natural, all good. It's not vegan, but it depends on where you stand on the vegan scale. Yeah. How vegan are vegan you? No, there's honey in it, which is something that I consume anyway. I do try and avoid it, but uh, I'm not that picky about it. But it has written the HH Holmes series, <laughs> and today it has powered the HH it has Holmes. Definitely powered the HH Holmes series. And I've tried it. Today was day one for me. And how does it feel? Um, <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised about the taste. Yeah. Because, like, I don't know. Like, I was looking at it's a it's green the liquid is green yeah and it called back it called to memory like lemongrass shots and i remember not really liking those but this one was actually really nice it was think lemongrass uh but sort of like to me it tasted like minty and more lemony like more orange like citrusy like a pleasant citrusy not so much like a pine salt smelling like you know it, it <laughs> yeah no it's definitely like a refreshing kind of taste yeah right? yeah for sure like it, and it had like zero aftertaste like it was like just drinking it with all in all was a pleasant experience yeah yeah mm-hmm. no i have to agree i was i found it the exact same 
So I'm one, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm wondering for you as well. Next week, we'll be able to report back on your sleeping because you don't sleep as well as I do. No, I don't. I my I my sleeping patterns, and it's not for it's some. I mean, sometimes it's for lack of trying, but um, I can't. It's hard for me to stay asleep sometimes, yeah. and it's hard for me to have quality sleep because I dream so much. Um, and I've tried like the meditation, but sometimes those dreams just want to come through. But yeah. um. Yeah, so I'll be able to tell you next week if I'm, you know, how how I'm doing. Sleeping better, yeah. And I think now we have like a good scale as well because I consume way too much caffeine on a regular day Mm -hmm. unless I'm taking one of these uh, Magic Mind shots. Yeah. You don't. No, I and I consume like what is an actual cup of coffee. Like (laughs) Yeah, just once or twice max, right? Yeah, but not like, like you're cups of coffee are like soup mugs <laughs> but mines are actual like little well i guess uh people in europe and everywhere else probably think oh this is a normal coffee cup but for everyone else is like no this is very small yeah but no it, it's an actual cup and that that i only consume one a day and we've both definitely been nice and chilled out lately uh you especially today you were just in there with the TV off when I came out. Yeah, that was... <laughs> you were just sitting that, and chilling. Yeah, like my dad... Before you came in, my dad came in and I was just sitting there. I had all my candles on and I turned off the TV and I was just sitting in bed, just sitting there, like just looking off into space. And both of y'all came in at different times like, you okay? What are you doing? And I was like, nothing. I'm just sitting like, this here. This is just me free of anxiety. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, I'm literally just sitting here enjoying my space. That's so it. I wonder, like that has to be from this like ashwagandha stuff, right? Because that, I mean, that's the ingredient in there that actively, I guess, fights stress and anxiety and stuff like that. Mm. Um, What I really want to try, and it's we haven't tried it yet, but because there's matcha in there and they give you these little cards with the boxes. Oh, maybe that's what I was tasting, the minty part. It's the matcha. It could, yeah, it could be. To me, it kind of tastes minty. But um, they give you like little uh, ingredients and instructions on other ways to enjoy your so you can actually make like a matcha latte oh no shit out of it yeah yeah sick so that's definitely something that i would like to try right on so yeah i think i would definitely recommend this but after getting the little box that it came in and stuff like you actually responded it's like the little boxes that come in the store like and it's packaged really nicely so they're just sitting in our fridge ready to go yeah they look adorable yeah so we definitely recommend getting the subscription because like like we mentioned last week you definitely save more money as well that's a win-win. That's a win for me. So if you want to go ahead and check out Magic Mind, go to www.magicmind.co forward slash creep and get 40% off your subscription using our code creep20. We are going to go ahead and add the link in the description. So if you want, you can just click that link. And yeah, just don't forget to use our code creep20 because that's how they know that you guys came from. From us. From us. Yeah. I think we've covered everything that we had to cover. Yay. So buckle in. Before So, so you did advise me. Well, you did tell me that you're gonna blow my pants off with this story. So I yeah. made I made sure to wear a belt. Good. Good. Thanks for the heads up. Yeah, no problem. Because <laughs> this is where all the twists and turns come in. Okay. So before we get up to our guts and more of the rascalities of this reckless rogue, I will say that once again. If you want to know like absolutely every single detail of the trial, business activities and the general comings and goings of Holmes, I sincerely recommend Adam Seltzer's book, 
H.H. H. Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil. For a step back into the world that was 1890 Chicago, read The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. It's a delight and it adds plenty of layers of really just deep context to the whole subject. But even just last night, I actually noticed like some, I'm not saying it's like the wrong information, but like dates were off and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem to be, it's more of a storyteller's version as opposed to a factually driven thing, but Mm -hmm. still a lovely book to read. Like those next Netflix uh, dramatic documentary type of. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely more of an entertainment value. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But I think all in all, my favorite book that I've read on this subject is Harold Schechter's Depraved. It's kind of a happy hybrid of the other two. He creates clear images through his non-sensational narrative while still driving home the severity of the crimes committed and maintaining a respect for the victims. There's still very much people as opposed to just names on a list, which I think can be like almost a symptom of the true crime author or those documentaries. Yes. And I'm sure it's never intentional, but like, I mean, sometimes it's just so many that you don't have time to go, you know, all in. But that being said, we do have other Harold Schechter books in our library. So I'm sure we'll be referencing him again sometime in the not so distant future. But a little word of warning, this episode might be a bit of a jumble of places and dates I'm going to try and keep my, I'm going to try and do my best to keep it as straightforward as I can. But, uh, you know, if you have to rewind and go, wait, 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 what city was this in? Like, I'm not going to blame you. And also last week, I can't remember where we said St. Louis was. But it's St. Louis, Missouri is what they were talking about in here. Yeah, you asked me, you were like, where is St. Louis? And I told you Missouri. You did? Okay, I couldn't remember. I'm surprised that I remembered (laughs) <laughs> my memory can be I, I can remember the dumbest shit not like the most important <laughs> shit <laughs> I like to I, I'm pretty sure and this is just from like years of watching Family Guy and The Simpsons and other American uh, media but like a lot of the time I just randomly know where this cities are in terms of states St. Louis got me though anyway it's Missouri St. Louis Missouri we were talking about so we left off last week with the most unfortunate murder of Benjamin Peitzel or Benny Oh, as yeah. his loving wife Carrie called him. I'm still reeling over that. Well, rest assured, murdering Benny would not be the last of Holmes's dealing with the Peitzel family. Or the worst, for that matter. Oh. Holmes showed up unannounced and uninvited to the Peitzel family's hovel of an apartment on Thursday the 6th of September 1895. The whole family were in floods of tears. Carrie was desperately sick from stress, malnutrition and exhaustion, just taking its toll on her body. Baby Wharton was also quite sick with a really bad cough. Like croup. He actually had croup. What is that? It's like a bad baby cough. I I don't think adults can get it. I don't know. But they had all just read an article describing the death of one B.F. Perry, which they knew to be their dad's fake name. Mm. But Carrie knew the insurance plan all along. The fact was that the the money Ben had left him before heading to Philadelphia had long since run out. And now she'd been working any odd job she could to get the five kids fed. She couldn't afford a doctor. And when she read the article, she just broke down at the kitchen table. Poor thing. Yeah, and it wasn't because she believed that he was dead. She just knew that it would bring a whole lot of new stress and 
she was thinking like how could he do this to us like when are we going to see him again Mm -hmm. and when the second eldest daughter went to comfort her she saw the article like lying on the kitchen table and then next thing the whole family were just in tears because they were all crying for their dead dad Carrie was crying for the stress yeah and I mean the oldest daughter had been told remember Ben yeah that he wasn't gonna be dead yeah but I guess she just forgot all about it I mean and you probably would if you just read an article saying that your dad was dead Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know you're not gonna be thinking clearly so home showing up at the door was almost an answer to their prayers or at least that's what they thought. He sent Desi, the oldest girl, to go and get a doctor. And then he went over the plan with Carrie. He couldn't understand why she was making such a fuss. He was quite, like, blunt with her. Mm-hmm. But he was saying the body was just some random cadaver from New York. He told her Benny was fine. She just wouldn't be able to see him for a while. Holmes had an extremely intricate plan to execute in order to claim the $10,000 from the insurance agency. And a lot of that relied on Carrie and just how much he could actually trust her not to let the cat out of the bag. After seeing the state she was in, he was having doubts already, but as it turns out, she was too sick to travel anyway. She couldn't send Desi because she was the oldest child and she would need to stay there to help Carrie look after the baby. So that left young Alice. Alice was 15. But this was perfect because Alice genuinely believed that her dad was dead which meant she couldn't slip up about any insurance fraud or anything. The family were still living in St. Louis, which is where Holmes had his little stint in jail a couple of months earlier. But while in jail, he managed to get connected with a less than savoury lawyer who was willing to help him by representing the family. This lawyer would escort Alice to Philadelphia because the insurance company needed a family member to identify the body. Understandably, Carrie wasn't too happy about sending her young one off, like with this complete stranger. But Holmes assured her that there was no need to be worried because his cousin was actually going to take care of her once she got to Philadelphia. His cousin was a lovely, highly responsible young woman who could be trusted implicitly. Any guesses on her name? Is it Minnie? It's Minnie Williams. His cousin Minnie. On Monday, September 10th, Holmes went to Wilmette to pay a surprise visit to his loving wife and daughter, leaving his other loving wife, Georgiana, to rest up in Indianapolis. Indianapolis. <laughs> <laughs> Wilmette, that's where Myrtha is, right? Yeah, so Wilmette is the is Myrtha and his daughter. Yeah. Georgiana is his latest wife. Yeah. Of course, Holmes had an ulterior motive for this visit. He was actually going to give Myrtha the heads up. He knew that the insurance investigator would soon link him to Peitzel as a known associate, so he gave her a rundown on answers and whatnot. The investigator arrived on Thursday. Holmes had got there on Monday. But the investigator was actually supposed to get there on Tuesday. Like, this is how close he was cutting it. Mm -hmm. And just that the dude got held up in his office, like, for a couple of days and couldn't make the trip out to Wilmette. Mm -hmm. But that just goes to show, like, the intricacies of this plan and how everything was, like starting to start yeah so Holmes got back to Georgiana in Indianapolis the following evening where he stayed for the next few days just throwing money at her staying in nice hotels buying her jewelry and all yeah just ones I was just I was just imagining him like with handfuls of money and she's just standing there stone-faced and he's just like but it's silver dollars like they're just hitting her yeah (laughs) good old-fashioned coins no but he was just spoiling her they, they even went to visit her parents for a night. 
uh, her parents were in Franklin, I think. He's just like, it's raining, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> On Saturday the 15th, he received a message from Merta with questions and information from the insurance agent, along with a clipped article from a newspaper detailing the death of Poitzel. But the newspaper had gotten the location wrong and said it actually happened in Chicago, the death. If Holmes had gone straight to Philly, it would have seemed suspicious. So instead, he took a train to fucking Columbus, Ohio. I'm not really sure why he chose Columbus. I think it was like to throw off the scent of the insurance, like because he's just <laughs> pretending to be this, you know, busy businessman. Yeah. He corresponded with the insurance guy, made sure that the insurance company would cover Holmes's travel cost, by the way. But he had actually arranged to be on the same train to Philadelphia as Alice and the lawyer so he could brief her on the 18th of September. This like blows my mind because I don't understand how people time trains like this back then, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? But just imagine being this terrified, grieving little 15-year-old girl. She was literally wearing threadbare clothes. She had holes in her shoes. She was on an overnight train with a complete stranger and at the end of her journey was her dad's decomposing corpse. All of a sudden, Holmes is just beside her giving her all these instructions, then telling her not to tell anyone that she had seen him before he just disappears off the train. Like, it sounds like a fever dream. Yeah. But that's literally what happened. Like, Alice fell asleep. The lawyer was sitting beside her. Then all of a sudden, Holmes woke her up. I was like, oh, Alice, dear. I didn't recognize you with that jacket, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, here's all the instructions. This is what you need to do. Bye-bye. And he just disappears into, like, the next carriage or something. So weird. Yeah. After a couple of lonely days in Philadelphia, stuck inside her hotel room while the lawyer and Holmes were getting set, were setting everything up, on Friday the 21st, they all met up with the insurance man. And it actually reminds me of that episode of The Office when uh, Dwight and Michael go to the small paper company. Like they put on oh, this Prince. little show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They put on this whole little show of not knowing one another. Oh, yeah. And they're like, <laughs> our signal is. Yeah, lick your lips. Lick your yeah. lips. Ah, <laughs> uh, why did Michael have to close his eyes when he did it? It was so suggestive. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so they put on this whole little show of not knowing one another. And after the insurance agent was happy with all the evidence and all that, they arranged the viewing of the body for the following morning. It had been three weeks since he had been murdered. Three weeks of decomposing. And the city actually had buried him the week before and had to exhume him that morning. Yeah. Whoa. Because... According to, like, I think, I don't know whether it was a law or what, but they were only allowed to keep him in the cold room of the morgue for 11 days before it just got too gross, I think. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it was a horrific scene, but Holmes and Alice both confirmed that it was indeed the body of Peitzel. And like, just to get into even more grim detail, because the skin was so badly... Burned? No, like just decomposing and stuff. Uh Holmes actually had to get like a some sort of utensil and like peel back layers to show where a scar had been on his calf. Jesus. And then he had this little like weird growth on the back of his neck, mm-hmm. which meant he couldn't wear like a collared shirt. Mm-hmm. And like he cut that off, Holmes did. He's like, see, this is the wart that's on the back of his neck. Jesus. And he put it in like a piece of material, just put it in his pocket. That's so weird. Yeah. But it was undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Sure. Whatever. It was Peitzel. Mm-hmm. And the insurance company said, well, thank God that this man was here to point this stuff out to us. And to cut this unsightly ward off this course. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. 
That's so weird. And like, um, I'm pretty sure Alice, they covered the corpse and all she could see was the teeth. But Whoa. she confirmed like, because it was a horrific scene, like yeah. she was a little girl. But she was able to com- confirm that these were her dad's like jacked up teeth because yeah, that's what thing. he was known for. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, I mean, it was a, that's how they would describe him like towards his later years. He, because he had been a really handsome man, supposedly, but like drink, drink and fights and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. And he had lost a lot of his teeth. And, oh. Yeah. The following day, Sunday, the 23rd of September. They all met at the Fidelity Mutual building to sign affidavits that they had identified the body. Holmes got his $10 travel expense check and left with the lawyer and Alice. From here, Alice was placed in the com- in the care of Holmes, who told her that they would be going back to St. Louis that evening to be back with Carrie and the rest of the family. Mm-hmm. The next day, Holmes showed up at the Indianapolis boarding house where Georgiana was staying. He embraced her passionately and then told her he had to leave again the following morning to settle some business in St. Louis. What he was actually doing in Indianapolis was finding a hotel for young Alice. He had informed her that her mother had been feeling much better and had actually decided that they were going to move somewhere new, like start afresh. But first, she was going to go visit her parents in Galva. And this next bit is verbatim from Depraved. Quote, Carrie wanted to pay a visit to her folks in Galva. Since it didn't make sense for Alice to travel all the way to St. Louis and then back again, the arrangement they had worked out was this. Holmes was to put Alice up in a hotel in Indianapolis, then continue on to St. Louis to fetch her two, to fetch two of her siblings, Nellie, 13, and Howard, 10. Holmes would bring them back to Indianapolis to keep Alice company, while her mother, Desi, and baby Wharton made the trip to Galva. Afterward, they would all be reunited and decide on a place to live. With the money that they had inherited from Alice's poor dead papa, they would buy their own house and live comfortably forever. That's exactly what Holmes told Alice. Mm-hmm. The following day, Holmes showed up at Carrie's flat in St. Louis, and naturally she was surprised to see him without Alice. I was always confused about this next part, but he explained to Carrie that Ben was alive and well. The insurance company had agreed to pay up but that didn't mean that they wouldn't still be investigating. And of course, they'd be on the lookout for a single mother with five kids. So he was going to take Nellie and Howard back to Indianapolis to stay with Alice. He told her he'd rented a house there for the whole winter and that his cousin Minnie had agreed to take care of all the kids. Ben, he assured her, was in Cincinnati lying low. He wanted Carrie and the kids to meet there briefly before he went way below radar, like hiding out down south for a few months. And this down south plan was like way south, like Chile or something like that. Mm -hmm. She should take the oldest girl and the baby and go and stay with her parents until Holmes gets the all clear for the visit. But he'd be back with further instruction from Ben. On Friday, September 28th, Carrie dropped Nellie and Howard at the train station where Holmes was to bring them back to Indianapolis to meet Alice, which he did. Although he had arranged for Alice to meet them at the station, and from there, they continued on to Cincinnati. They got there very late and checked into a cheap hotel. And the next morning, they checked into a different hotel, just as cheap. One room, two beds, and a new alias for Holmes. As soon as they checked in, Holmes took Howard to go and run an errand. He had prepaid $15 to rent a house from a realtor, 305 Poplar Street, sight unseen. 
He then went to a used furniture store and arranged a delivery to the new rental property, only for it to turn out to be way less secluded than he had been led to believe. And the next door neighbour had watched him move all of his furniture in. The weird thing, though, was all of his furniture consisted of just one extremely large stove, like one might use to heat a beer hall. There was no couches, no tables, no anything else. Just a very well-to-do man, a big old stove, and a noticeably poor little boy. Holmes was furious that he had to abandon his plan. The next morning, he knocked on the nosy neighbour's door and informed her that his plans had suddenly changed, but if she wanted this ridiculously large stove, she was more than welcome to have it. That afternoon, he took the three kids to the zoo, and they all had a lovely time. The kids had never been to a zoo before. After the zoo, they left Cincinnati and they headed back to Indianapolis. Different hotel, different alias. The next day, Monday, another hotel and another alias. He told the children to stay put because he would be going to pick up their mom and siblings that evening in St. Louis. He then ran up the street to the hotel where Georgiana was staying, but he could only stay for a few minutes because he really had to be going back to St. Louis. He was actually going back to St. Louis to see Carrie but he wasn't going to reunite the family. On Tuesday, October 2nd, he brought Carrie to the lawyer's office to collect her $10,000 insurance check. The insurance company had deducted $284.15 for their investigation. The lawyer's fees amounted to $2,400, plus just over $100 for travel expenses, per diem, etc. Then Holmes took her to the bank where he informed her that she would have to cover a $5,000 debt on the building in Fort Worth in order to keep Ben's percentage of the building, which would amount to $16,000 unless she were to forfeit. Holmes then went to the counter, filled out all the necessary paperwork and returned with a promissory note. Then there were his fees for all of his troubles. This, after all, was his plan. $1,500 should cover it. Oh, and $100 for the children back in Indianapolis. And that left Carrie with a handsome sum of just over $500. Still more money than she had ever seen in her life. Like, because she was quite poor. But the promissory note that Holmes had given her was... It was a real promissory note for $16,000. But it was worthless because Holmes and Peitzel had stolen that from a dude. Like, this was taken on loan from some random Texan. So she basically just had evidence of them stealing $16,000. Oh, okay. But it was such a whirlwind for her trying to keep up with all this and still like grieving for her children that she hasn't seen in days, not knowing what's going on. And Holmes is like, don't worry, don't worry. I'll look after everything. And from that $10,000, she's left with $500. So like all the lawyer's fees and all that stuff, did they take that? Before they gave them the check, or is this all like a ruse from Holmes? Well, no, the insurance, the the lawyer uh-huh. was a crooked lawyer. Oh, so real lawyers' fees wouldn't have been that much, but he was savvy to the plan, so he oh. could charge whatever he wanted. Okay, Holmes, his like actual, um, like the fifteen hundred dollars that he claimed to have taken. That wasn't too bad. It was the $5,000 that he had actually pocketed while he was standing at the cashier. Oh. Yeah. But all of this, he was just throwing at her, like Mm -hmm. blindsiding her. And poor Georgiana, or poor Carrie was just left like, 
Like confused. Just, just fucking yeah. like do whatever. Like just confused, tired, emotionally drained. Yeah, not and... wanting anything to do with any of this. Yeah. He had given her strict instructions to go and visit her parents in Galva and await further instruction from Benny via Holmes. He dashed back to Indianapolis, laden with cash, and spent the night and the following day spoiling Georgiana before breaking the news that he must travel to Cincinnati for urgent business. Georgiana went back to her friend or her parents for a few days because she was bored and lonely just waiting around all the time. And on Thursday the 4th, Holmes bid farewell to her and finally went back to the kids who were devastated that like they were expecting their mom to pick them up the night before. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden he just shows up and they're devastated. Their mom, their other siblings weren't with them, but he assured them that it was only another week or so. He was like, oh, your mom's just having a great time up there in Galva. You know, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He took them out for the day to cheer them up. But when they went back to the hotel, young Howard, like, just pitched a fit. He made a scene in front of the hotel owner who already felt bad for the three kids because, like, every time someone went up to drop food off or anything, the three kids were just sitting there, like, usually crying or just trying to draw, write letters, do anything just to pass the time. And Howard was 10. Yeah. You know? There was no TV back then. There was no TV. Yeah, no little tablet or anything. You know what I mean? But the thing that saddened them the most was they just couldn't understand why their mom wasn't answering their letters. They wrote at least once a day and gave them to Uncle Howard to post. Holmes finally got the boy to quieten down in the room, but only by threatening to beat him if he wouldn't stop. Now, that's not like back then. That's fucking casual stuff. You know what I mean? But he was frantic. Holmes went back downstairs, spoke to the hotel owner, brow furrowed with worry. He just didn't know what his poor widowed sister was going to do with the lad. He had been nothing but trouble ever since he was born, and she was far too soft on him. Holmes told the man that he was actively looking for a farm or an institution to send him off to for a while. Over the weekend, Holmes took care of some business, renting another house, this one more secluded than the last, ordering furniture and a large coal stove and he also brought his surgical equipment to go and get sharpened. On Monday morning, he arrived at the kids' hotel and picked up Howard. He had run away on Saturday when Holmes had originally tried to pick him up, but his his sisters had packed his little wooden trunk, and this time he was ready to go. The girls were in floods of tears, saying goodbye to their baby brother. Like, they had said goodbye to so many people already at this point. But his cousin Minnie had a big, great big house in Terre Haute and lovely ground so how, how the, so Howard wouldn't have to stay cooped up all day long. On Tuesday, October 9th, a guy who worked odd jobs in the barn at the house Holmes had rented helped him set up the big coal burner. Holmes told him his sister would be moving in in the next few days and when the young lad asked why he wanted a dirty coal burner instead of a nice modern gas one, Holmes told him that he didn't think gas was safe for children. As the helper left the house that afternoon, he saw a little boy hanging around on the porch, looking sad and lonely. He gave him a little wave. On Thursday, October 11th, Georgiana received a message telling her to head to Detroit to meet Holmes, a train ride that took her literally all day. She was suffering from debilitating migraines and was sitting, eyes closed, on the train outside Detroit when Holmes just sat down beside her. What are the odds? He got her checked into a hotel. Like he literally, this was like, oh my God, Georgiana, I can't believe we're on the same train. 
Anyway, he got her checked into a hotel where all she could do was lay in bed with her eyes closed in the dark. Then he slipped off back to the train station because Alice and Nellie were waiting on him. They had all been on the same train, on different carriages. This is just Holmes just like pulling strings at this point. It was just him being a complete psycho. On Sunday, Carrie showed up with Desi and baby Wharton. Holmes had told her that Ben would be there waiting for her. He wasn't, obviously. And Holmes told her that Alice and Nellie were being looked after in Indianapolis. But he had actually gone and rented himself another secluded house. 241 East Forest Avenue, just outside Detroit. He spent the next couple of days getting it ready, digging a hole in the back of the cellar. Not big enough to be a conventional grave, but certainly big enough for remains. What he was not aware of, though, was what he had told Carrie about the insurance company keeping the investigation going was not entirely untrue. It was not actually the company, but their chief investigator just couldn't let it go. And he was looking for clues as he was like going about trying to solve other like open cases. He was also just asking around about this suspicious case because he just didn't, something wasn't sitting right with this guy. Holmes had also told his entire plan to someone in an uncharacteristically honest moment. And this was the wrong person to tell it to as well. So I think I briefly mentioned Marion Hedgepeth in an episode before, but because we had that episode that we lost, I'm not sure whether I mentioned it again in the published episode. Okay. But Hedgepeth was known as like the the handsome bandit and all this. And while Holmes was in prison for those 10 days... Oh, is that the the one that was famous in Texas for being like handsome and like a murderer and all this other shit? Yeah, like I mean, he was just a uh, like a nationally known bandit. Like, oh, I didn't know they were cool. Holmes in them. Well, so he met him while he was in prison, and I think no shit. Yeah, let me read this paragraph, and then we'll get back to it because I can't remember what I have written. Okay, <laughs> so. okay. Anyway, while Holmes was in prison for those 10 days, he had introduced himself to Hedgepeth, who the papers had dubbed the handsome bandit. He was a real-life Wild West outlaw in the flesh, and I think Holmes was actually just a little bit starstruck. He really wanted to impress him. How strange. I know, but like we were saying, like these guys were the rock stars of the day. Like They were notorious. No, it's strange that Holmes would want to impress him. I mean, I think this guy was what Holmes wanted to be. Weird. You know? And who doesn't want to be like that cool fucking, you know, suit wearing gangster? Like, you know? All right. Anyway. <laughs> I don't t- see a big go off. <laughs> he told Hedgepeth that he would pay him $500 for the name of a dodgy lawyer for the Peitzel insurance, for the Peitzel insurance scam then proceeded to tell him every last detail, including the bit about the late payment. Remember, Ben had forgotten oh, to pay yeah, the fucking yeah. insurance premium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when Hedgepeth didn't receive any compensation, even after reading about the death in the papers, he figured he figured he could use the information for like lenience in his jail time or something like that. So the investigator got a sworn statement from Hedgepeth himself. The insurance company confirmed everything And they really didn't want to because they were like trying to play like the media game. They didn't want to be seen as the people who denied this broken family the money that their father had left them. Yeah. So they were like, are you fucking sure? It was that detail about the late payment Mm -hmm. that made them throw up their hands and go, fuck, like. 
He's telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah. He's telling the truth. We're out 10 grand and this Holmes dude is a criminal. Yeah. The walls were closing in on Holmes, but someone tipped him off. And on Wednesday the 17th, he abandoned the Detroit plan and surprised Georgiana with a trip north of the wall. They were going to go visit Niagara Falls. But first, they would have to travel through Toronto for a small bit of business. Nothing major, but the next morning, while Georgiana was packing her things, Holmes slipped out to run a little errand. Then he arrived at the hotel that Carrie, Desi and baby Wharton were staying at and told them that, sadly, this just wasn't a safe place to meet dear Benny because he had seen like these plainclothes police officers in Detroit following him around. Ben was already on a train to Toronto. Here's some tickets. You guys go hop on the train. It leaves at 11.30. Pack your stuff up. I'll see you there later. I'm actually going to get on the 9 o'clock train. They'd wait at the train station for Holmes to collect them that night. Right? This is all this running around is going on. He then went to Alice and Nellie's hotel and gave them two train tickets for Toronto for the following morning. Then he ran back to pick up Georgiana so they could get on the 9 a.m. train. This is actually reminding me of that scene from Mrs. Doubtfire, you know, when he's yeah. in, the ho- in the restaurant, like running back and forth, like swapping his things. When he finally meets Carrie much later that night, like he, when they got to Toronto, him and Carrie or him and Georgiana went off on a lovely, uh, like to a lovely nice restaurant, had a meal while Carrie, Desi and the baby were sitting just in the cold at the fucking train station for hours. Yeah. But he makes up some excuse. He's like, look, Ben was here in Toronto, but he actually had to go to Montreal because Toronto isn't safe either. He's going to stay here. He's going to find a safe house in Toronto. So then he can get Ben from Montreal to sneak back up. Don't worry. Everything's under control. He spent the following day sightseeing and shopping with Georgiana, dropping her off at the hotel where he said he was far too full of pep to settle down. So he was going to go for a little walk to clear his head after the excitement of the day. Where he was actually going was back to the train station just in time to help Alice and Nellie off the train and up to the Albion Hotel. Just for reference, the hotel the girls were staying at was less than a mile walk from where Carrie was staying. Wow. Okay, their mom, their sister, the baby brother. And Georgiana was staying just 200 metres from where Carrie was. So weird. So all this running up and down. Holmes rented a house in Toronto and actually introduced himself to the elderly neighbour, explaining that he was going to, you know, get the house ready for his sister. This was his, like, base story everywhere he went. He was going to get the house ready for his sister and her children, but could he borrow a shovel so he could dig a little hole in the cellar for potatoes, which is apparently very normal back then. People would leave their potatoes and turnips and stuff underground Mm -hmm. and would help keep them longer. I guess it was cooler. So on the morning of Thursday, October 25th, He collected the two little girls from their hotel. Later that afternoon, while Carrie was doing some shopping in the department store on Young Street with Desi and baby Wharton, just trying to kill some time and get out of the hotel, when suddenly they came across a familiar face. Holmes. He was positively furious. Clearly caught off guard and thinking on his feet. He turns around to Carrie and he's like, where have you been? I've been trying to find you all day. I was at the hotel. You guys weren't there. You should never leave without my instruction. He told her that there's plainclothes police officers scoping out the house that he had just rented and like the plan has all been compromised. 
He told her to wait here while he went to finish up his purchases or whatever in the department store. So Carrie waited 10 minutes and then Desi went looking for him, but he just disappeared. He's like, stay right there. I'll be right back. Yeah. He showed up at their hotel room at five o'clock that evening. Not, he just didn't mention his little disappearing act. He handed her train tickets and told her that she needs to get a train to Prescott, Ontario right now. And from there, she would go to Ogdensburg, Ogdensburg, New York the following day. He would meet her in New York. Alice and Nellie were never seen alive again after that day. Okay, he had brought them to that rental house. Oh, and that was it. That was it. But one of the weirdest things, and actually I don't think I mentioned this uh, later on, like up until this, for whatever amount of time, I think they were in Toronto for like six or seven days, he'd been taking them out sightseeing. Yeah, I remember you were telling me like he he had taken them out to the zoo, took them out if they were like uh, throwing a fit and like shit like that just to distract them. Yeah, and I think um, because the girls were very well behaved, I think they were probably afraid like. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I don't know whether it was so if people did see them out and about, they would remember like him being a loving uncle. Yeah. Or whether this was just for his own amusement. Anyway, there are some people, including Carrie herself, that believe they had all actually been in the same store that day. And that's what Holmes was doing in the department store. He had either checked the girls out of their hotel, brought them to the house and murdered them, then took Georgiana out to the department store to do some nice shopping. Or he had brought the girls to the department store to, for whatever reason, before he brought them to the house to be murdered. Either way, it's likely that he took Georgiana there for shopping because if he wouldn't even pay money to retrieve someone's trunk from the train station. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. But poor Carrie thought like she really felt like she had been this close to seeing her children for one last time. Like, yeah. Over the next few days, they would travel separately, arranging to meet Holmes in Burlington, Vermont on November 2nd. Here, Holmes was sorting out another rental house. This one was furnished and Carrie, Desi and baby Wharton stayed here for the next little while. But Carrie was at her wit's end at this point. She told Holmes that she was leaving to go to Indianapolis to see Alice and Nellie and young Howard. Because she genuinely thought that Minnie Williams was down there looking after them in this big house. But to put her off that trail, he says, no, 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 don't worry. I actually set them up in a house in Toronto. All three of them are up there with my cousin now because I remember that you liked it up there. So don't worry. He talked her down anyway and said that he was actually leaving for Montreal the following morning to go and finally get Benny and bring him back to her. He told Georgiana that he had some business to to take care of up in Massachusetts, right? He's like, look, look, I'll be back in a few days, love. We're finally going to go on that big Germany trip. We're going to go and claim that land or whatever bullshit he had told them. But of course, he wasn't going to Montreal and he wasn't going to complete business in Massachusetts. In a total and utter shocking twist, he had decided for some unknown reason that he was actually going back to Gilmanton, New Hampshire. Does that ring a bell? No. He was returning to his true love, Clara Lovering, his first wife, who he hadn't seen in like 12 or 13 years or something. He had a 13-year-old son there anyway. Mm -hmm. He told Clara that he had been in a train wreck out west and that he had lost his memory. What? 
Yeah, he's literally showed up, and the, one of the accounts of him showing up is like a snowy night in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, and Papa has arrived home. Go and get the the horses and the wagons. Like the little boy was delighted. Clara was like, "Oh my god, I'm so happy you're you finally home." Yeah, that's so weird. Crazy. So he tells her, "Here, look, Clara, you're you're not gonna fucking believe this, right?" Hit my head in a train wreck out west. Lost my memory, and thankfully, I survived. But listen, I have a horrific confession to make. While he was in hospital, convalescing, not knowing who he was or where he came from, he had fallen madly in love with a, quote, beautiful, wealthy woman who brought flowers to the sick and read to us from books and with her gentle voice sought to bring cheer into the dull hospital wards. This good woman, whose name was Georgiana Yoke, had fallen in love with him and he with her, and upon his recovery, the two were wed. His new wife was so deeply moved by her husband's determination to remember who he really was that she went and hired a brilliant surgeon who performed a, quote, wonderful operation on his brain. And when he woke up from this miracle operation, he suddenly remembered that he was already married. The best part about all of this is that Clara just went, oh my God. that's mad come on back Jesus yeah she was like don't worry about it I forgive you like all is forgiven it's fine so weird he didn't ask like what's up with your second wife no she took that explanation like that's fine like okay but you still got married to another woman what is happening with her what about it it's fine she's got lots of money don't worry about it brain surgery he spent a week with his wife and kid before telling them I have business to attend to in Boston or something like that. I just remembered. Yeah, I just fuck, actually, <laughs> do you know what? But like the best part about this is he actually told him that this train wreck only happened a year before. So that still doesn't like excuse the 10 year gap. Yeah. That he was just gone. Anyway, he promised them that he was going to be back in April. I just have a bit of business to attend to and then I'm going to retire back here. But from New Hampshire, he made his way to Boston, which is where he was to set sail with Georgiana back to Germany or whatever. And here he wrote a letter to Carrie with further instruction to meet him in Lowell, Massachusetts the following week. It was too late, though. The insurance agent had realized a few weeks previous that this job was bigger than him. And so he had hired the infamous Pinkerton Agency. Have you ever heard of these? Never. Okay, if you played Red Dead Redemption, you'll be familiar with the Pinkertons. Shout out to Gordy, who is playing (laughs) Red Dead Redemption right now. The Pinkerton Detective Agency, in a nutshell. Oh, are those the people that, like, I I think I watched you play and then, like, they found out that you were hiding in this house and they were searching the house for you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember now. Yeah, so they were an actual... They still are an actual detective agency. Oh, really? Yeah. So they were it, for real. Legit, like... They are a private investigation slash private security company that have been around since, I think, 1850. And they're still in business today, but, like, under, you know, some fucking gigantic... Uh, I think it's actually, like, a Swedish company or something bought okay. them. Okay. But you know who we don't like? The Pinkertons. Racist. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, and racist. <laughs> <laughs> But in the past three years alone, they've been hired by both Amazon and Starbucks to spy on unionizing employees. So fuck those guys. Fuck Amazon. Even though I do use their service, like, and fuck Starbucks because your coffee tastes like a fellow of a donkey's arsehole. 
But I just thought that was funny because the night that I found out this, like that they were still active and all like, you know, spying on fucking unionizing uh, regular people. The following day, Starbucks was on strike. And I was like, good for you guys. Yeah, good for Get you. Get up, fuck the Pinkerton. Now they are just doing like, it's like if you or I wanted to go to them and hire them for security detail or for me to like, you know, I thought you were cheating. So I could hire the Pinkertons. Okay, they, you could yeah, still do that. Yeah, so they cool. just do whatever they're paid to do. Like, oh, okay. I mean, really, it's like fuck the. It's like mercenaries. Hire them. Yeah, exactly. And actually, real quick as well, they stopped an assassination attempt on Abraham Lincoln. Once. Once, yeah, it didn't work the second time. Anyway, at three o'clock in the afternoon of Saturday, November seventeenth, nineteen eighty-four. At a lodging house located at 40 Hancock Street in Boston, Holmes found himself surrounded by four Pinkerton agents. He surrendered without putting up a fight. He didn't know at this point what he was being arrested for, but when he saw the dude from the insurance agency, he was visibly relieved. He was, after all, only being arrested on account of insurance fraud. What he was truly afraid of... Was the murders. No, he didn't care about that. What he was... Polygamy. (laughs) No, nothing like that. He was terrified of serving time for the crime he had committed in Texas. Stealing horses. Oh, because then he'd be dead. He would be dead in a fucking flash. And he knew it. He was like, oh God, please don't send me back to Texas. He actually said, quote, I would dislike fearfully to go to Fort Worth to serve a term. I had rather be here in Philadelphia five years than there one. That's how much he didn't want to. He would rather do a five-year sentence in Philadelphia. <laughs> okay. He completely admitted that he was guilty of committing this fraud, but insisted that the body was not Peitzel. It was just some random cadaver. Peitzel was still alive and well. In fact, Peitzel also had three of his kids with him. Alice, Nellie and young Howard. They had made a break for it when they were all like on the run there in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. He had actually handed over the kids to Ben and they were hiding in either Florida or like fucking Argentina, somewhere very far south right now. This is where I'm going to do some extreme skimming. But over the next year or so, Holmes released his three confections, his three confessions, which you can read in Adam Seltzer's book, The Three Confessions of H.H. Holmes. Also, if you're interested in the actual trial and all the events there between like him getting arrested and his being sentenced. Read the books I mentioned at the start. It, like, the, yeah, they go into interviews, letters, all that kind of other bits and pieces. But six months after this day, the day he was arrested, the police were still trying to get evidence that Holmes had murdered not just Ben, but the three kids too. Like, obviously, all this stuff came out, like, when Carrie got pulled in. He had given them that bullshit South America story, and they had pursued it, or at least, like, looked for clues to see if it was maybe true. But by May of 1895, they were almost sure that it was just another lie. But anything that he said, like there was nuggets of truth all over the place that they would have to go and Mm -hmm. investigate. One day in court, while being questioned for like the umpteenth time, Holmes suddenly changed the story, saying, quote, The last time I saw Howard was in Detroit, Michigan. There I gave him to Miss Williams, Minnie Williams who took him to Buffalo, New York, from which point she proceeded to Niagara Falls. 
After the departure of Howard in Miss Williams' care, I took Alice and Nellie to Toronto, where they remained for several days. At Toronto, I purchased railroad tickets for them to Niagara Falls. I put them on the train and rode out of Toronto with them a few miles, so they would be assured that they were on the right train. Before their departure, I prepared a telegram which they should send me from the falls if they failed to meet Miss Williams and Howard. I also carefully pinned inside Alice's dress $400 in large bills so Miss Williams would have funds to defray their expenses. They joined Miss Williams and Howard at Niagara Falls, from which point they went to New York City. At the latter place, Miss Williams dressed Nellie as a boy and took a steamer for Liverpool, whence they went to London. If you search among the steamship offices in New York, you must look for a woman and a girl and two boys, not a woman and two girls and a boy. This was all done to throw the detectives off the track, who were after me for the insurance fraud. Miss Williams opened a massage establishment at number 80 Vedar or Vedar Street in London. I have no doubt the children are with her now and very likely at that place. They weren't. Clearly. He even went as far as having the district attorney put out a coded message in the New York Sunday Herald, which was supposed to be sold in London. And that, you know, the idea being that Minnie would see it and respond. And it was <laughs> like in the books, it lays it out. And it's like he told him, you know, put in whatever you want and then just put this coded message at the bottom or in the middle of it. I was like A, A, B, B, C and like large and small letters. It was the. The word Republican in uppercase mm-hmm. and the word Republican again in lowercase. And he would like, you know, say, Minnie Williams, like, give us the answers. Tell us where the children are or something. The fuck? Yeah, but obviously nobody ever got back to them. They just thought like, somebody put out the most ridiculous fucking yeah. newspaper ad. I think he was genuinely just so far into his own fantasies at this point. Like, it was unbelievable. But again, every possibility had to be checked because they genuinely wanted to find carries kids for her like she was yeah it makes sense yeah yeah and she was a broken woman yeah at, at this point everything t- literally taken from her yeah he had also changed the story about ben's murder again he was now claiming that ben had actually killed himself but holmes had to make it look accidental because the insurance wouldn't pay out otherwise for the family you right. see holmes was like their guardian angel and you may have been wondering how we were able to have such a solid timeline of the whole chase with the children. Well, like I was saying earlier, the girls had been writing to their mother almost every day, sometimes multiple letters in in one day, just out of pure boredom, loneliness and desperation. With many of these letters asking why Carrie was not replying back to them and wondering why they had received no mail from her when Uncle Howard was taking their letters to get mailed every day. Holmes had actually been keeping all of their letters in this little metal box, which was among his possessions when he was arrested. I'm not sure exactly why he had been keeping them, but we do know that he had given Carrie at least one letter, which he had written himself in the style of Alice. Okay, it was really weird, but it was like he had taken the time to read and understand all of, like, you know, what was going through their mind. So he wrote a letter from their perspective but also saying like Howard has gone to like a boarding school or is doing quite well at school. So like weird stuff like that. And Carrie knew it wasn't from them. Like, yeah, she was, she was like, what, this doesn't make sense. Like, 
Well, anyway. I mean, it's a lot like how I was telling you before. It's like there he's learning behaviors of humans and like you know women men and how they think and like this is like <clears throat> to make him seem normal to whoever audience he's catering to so that he can worm his way into something or out of something yeah and yeah. he's dealing with children so of course he's like these letters i feel like these letters are like his study material that yeah essentially you know? yeah because it's just another skill that he could have in his arsenal if he should ever. And I feel like he was probably keeping those letters like he, how he was, how he had other people write letters. He was probably going to use them for something else. Yeah, probably somewhere down the line, like as mm -hmm. proof that. Yeah, he's like, see, they're alive because they're writing these letters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the fact that he had kept them was actually a blessing, really, though, because police were able to use these letters to retrace every step of this bizarre journey. One detective in particular, said to have been one of Philadelphia's finest, a 20-year veteran named Frank Geyer. Now, Frank needed this investigation at this time, I think. This poor guy had lost his own wife and 12-year-old daughter to a house fire in March of 1895. So this is only three months, two months, prior to him taking the lead on this investigation. And through real... Good old-fashioned police work, like legit Sherlock Holmes-style stuff. He would go to a location, right? Mention, he would go to a location mentioned in the girl's letters. And with the help of a local police officer, he would literally search every hotel, boarding house and rental agency in the city directory until he got a lead. Wow. Yeah. And there was a lot of places that he had to do this in. Mm -hmm. This was also in the middle of July. Just for context, it was like the hottest summer and whatever. But it was thanks to this dogged persistence that he had managed to figure out Holmes's MO in regards to, you know, renting a private house for his deeds and like the story that he would give to these rental people. And in Toronto, he found the house where the girls had met their fate. 16 St. Vincent Street, which I'm almost sure today is actually St. Vincent Lane and the houses are long since gone. I When I lived in Toronto, I actually tried to go there and when i looked it up it turns out oh i have been there like i walked past it mm. but it's just like a car park behind a hospital or something oh interesting yeah anyway in some sort of sick synchronicity the police started to dig in the cellar borrowing the same shovel holmes had borrowed from the old man next door nine months earlier they found the remains of the two girls buried in a shallow three-foot grave it was a horrific bittersweet scene for the detectives their hard work had paid off, and now Carrie would at least know what had happened to her little girls. But now they had to tell Carrie what had happened to her little girls. A story came out that Holmes had actually rigged up a trunk with like a hole in the side, and he would attach this hose to the fucking trunk, put the girls inside, and then suffocate them with gas. It became a common illustration in publications and stuff. But the story was completely fabricated by the newspapers. There wasn't even a gas supply in the house at the time. So it was also reported that he then like removed the feet of the girls for some reason. But this too was like just not true. Holmes, though, is the reason why these stories got so big. Because he would read these stories about himself and be like, oh yeah, yeah, that's what happened. Fuck it. Like that's that's what I did. I think he was just doing it for his own amusement. Judging from what we do know of Holmes's modus operandi. That's what it is, right? Operandi? Not a clue. <laughs> M.O. His Holmes' M.O. 
it's a lot more likely that the girls were poisoned, possibly suffocated, like typical of his previous murders. But their bodies showed no signs of like actual violence. Okay. You know, it was still really bizarre and strange though. The other thing was that they still hadn't managed to find Howard. They knew he hadn't made it as far as Toronto, but thanks to some misremembered information from a hotelier in Indianapolis, the dates were kind of thrown off a little bit. Frank Geyer was obsessed, though. He was working himself into the ground, travelling from town to town, fervently out, searching in the heat every day, no doubt wearing like a three-piece fucking hat and a or a three-piece suit and a hat every step of the way. (laughs) Yeah, this is my three-piece hat, a waistcoat and all. He actually looked so bad that when he was called back to Philadelphia for some urgent business that he was ordered to stay there and rest for a few days before leaving again. Like his sergeant gave him those orders. He eventually worked out that Howard had disappeared while the girls were still in Indianapolis. He was there on a third stint and he had literally checked every single hotel in the city and all the outlying towns, writing to his superior that there was just one final town that he had to check And after this, he was out of ideas. But on the 27th of August, he made his way to Irvington, a a town so small that there was no hotels to check. But he soon found the house that Holmes had rented. And thanks to the young lad who had helped Holmes put the big coal burner together, they were sure that this was where young Howard had last been seen alive. Detective Guyer later wrote of that moment saying, All the toil, all the weary days and weeks of travel, toil and travel in the hottest months of the year, alternating between faith and hope and discouragement and despair, all were recompensed in that one instant, when I saw the veil about to lift and realised that we were soon to learn where the little boy had gone. They searched the house and found nothing initially, but all of the townsfolk had shown up. The sun was setting and they still needed a positive ID from the real estate agent who rented the homes, the house. So the two detective ate, the, so the two detectives had to leave. While they were gone, though, two doctors were searching the house as well as just some fucking teenagers. The local law enforcement was like just one dude, I guess, like a marshal. Is that what they're called? Yeah, or a sheriff. Yeah, and he just couldn't keep people away from the crime scene. Like, mm-hmm. Thankfully, the doctors were there because these two kids found the burnt remains of little Howard in a chimney in the cellar of the house. And the doctors were able to say, no, 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 these are human remains. Back the fuck off now. So the detectives went back in a hurry and they found a lot more. Why was he trying to kill all of the Pytel children though? And why hadn't he just killed Carrie and Desi since they were the only two who really knew anything about the insurance scam, which certainly seemed to be the only thing that Holmes was outwardly concerned about. But the day Holmes was arrested, he had actually written to Carrie. He had gone and rented that house on like it was Winooski Avenue in Burlington. Well, In this letter, Holmes told Carrie to meet him in New York the following week and he also asked her to move something for her. An expensive bottle of chemicals that he had placed in the basement of the house, he asked her to bring it upstairs and leave it in a bedroom on the third floor as he was afraid that it would get damaged where it was. It was actually a bottle of nitroglycerin. Now nitroglycerin is a liquid that is mixed with clay to make dynamite and in this liquid form can explode if it's even just picked up too quickly or not treated gently enough like it's one of the most volatile substances like known to man for instance that Cerro Gordo dude that I watched that owns the ghost 
the abandoned town. town. Mm-hmm. Like when they're walking through the mines, they have to keep an eye out to make sure that there's no dynamite because the, the nitroglycerin sweats back out of the clay over time. So if you step on a board that happens to have nitroglycerin in it, you could blow yourself up potentially. That's how volatile, volatile it is. It is. Yeah. yeah. So Holmes's plan was to blow up Carrie, Desi and baby Wharton in that house while he was on the ship over to England or Germany or wherever he was going. Mm-hmm. Like he really was about to make this journey for the last time. And Carrie did move it. She got the letter. It was actually delivered to her by an undercover Pinkerton agency who had been running fucking Holmes's messages. She was just absolutely blessed that it didn't go off. It just happened to not go off. Wow. Yeah. And she knew that there was something weird about it. So she didn't bring it up to the upstairs. She just carried it out and left it in the back garden. But it was just because she didn't want this poor lady's house burning down or something like Weird. Yeah. And even the way Holmes had placed it, it was like behind these planks. So he was hoping that like she would just knock it over when she was in the basement. Yeah. And the whole house would just go up in flames. Huh. On Saturday, November 2nd, 1895, as far as I can make out, a jury found Holmes guilty of the murder of Benjamin Peitzel. Just one murder. But I think the reason was that they just needed to end the trial. Poor Carrie was being dragged through this whole thing. And I think if they were trying to get him for every crime he had ever committed, which was like at least eight murders that were 99% sure that he did, it would have just brought a whole bunch of other possibilities like ways for him to snake himself back out of this stuff. So instead, they stuck with the one that they had as much proof as they could possibly get for. On November 30th, he was sentenced to death by hanging. Now, I don't know if he made the request or even had the option, but I know that he had said at some stage that he would much rather go by electric chair. So I don't know whether this was just a, well, fuck you, you're gonna, we're going to hang you, or whether that was just the only option available mm. at this prison. Uh, which was Moya Mensing or something it's called. He wriggled and squirmed and tried every way he could possibly think to get a retrial or to postpone his death sentence, still trying different schemes to convince Carrie Peitzel that she needed to get money and like all different sorts. He went from being an atheist to being a devout Christian overnight, but eventually the last day came. And I mean, literally the week before he was writing to Carrie saying, you need to fill out these legal forms and I need to be the witness so as we can get like Ben's fucking secret stash of money that he had left for you and all this stuff. The fuck? Yeah, thankfully her and her lawyer or the district attorney just kept, like at this point they knew he was just like in the last throes of desperation. Like, But the day came and as he stood looking out over a crowd of 80 witnesses at Moya Mensing Prison, he said his last words. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Was that it? Because he's a son of a bitch. He'd say some shit like that. No. Nah, or he'd he... probably be like, oh, there's other murders that I fucking, that I can tell you more information about. Well, kind of. He said, quote, gentlemen, I have very few words to say. I would make no remarks at this time were it not for my feeling that by not speaking, I would acquiesce in my execution by hanging. I wish to say at this instant that the extent of my misdoing in taking human life consists in the killing of two women. They died at my hands as the result of criminal operations. I only say this so that there shall be 
no misunderstanding of my words hereafter. I am not guilty of taking the lives of the Peitzel family, the three children or the father, Benjamin F. Peitzel, for whose death I am now to be hanged. This is all I have to say. The two women that he was referencing were Julia Mimi. Connors oh. and Emmeline C. Grand. Oh. He, his story with Minnie, he was like trying to convince people, no, 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 Minnie's still alive. Oh, yeah, she yeah. killed her sister because she was so jealous of how her sister felt about me. He just caused fuckery. Yeah. At every turn. But this also completely contradicted every other sworn confession that he had made and adding just more confusion to his insanity. So with the noose around his neck, the executioner gave the signal and the trapdoor opened. It took 15 minutes for his heart to stop beating. And at precisely 10.25am, Thursday, May 7th, 1896, Herman Webster Mudgett was declared dead. Even in death, he was so fucking self-absorbed that his his attorney or his lawyer or whoever was in charge of handling his remains was given the strict instructions that his body was to be taken immediately from the prison to the funeral home. In the funeral home, they would place his body in a coffin. The coffin would then be filled with fresh concrete. It would be kept there overnight in placed after being placed in a bigger casket also filled with fresh concrete they would lay like a piece of linen over his face then the next morning after being guarded overnight by pinkerton agents his solidified body would be taken to the grave and there would be buried in more concrete and then they would put even more concrete on top of that because already people were like offering to pay thousands and thousands of dollars just to dissect his brain to see if they could find out what was going on in there, you know. So that was his final uh, request from the lawyer. So did it happen? Yeah. That's how Holmes was buried in literally tons of concrete. cement. Yeah, concrete. Hmm. Because he was so worried that what he had done to so many cadavers would be done to his that's his what i was thinking because yeah. because he was afraid of that or maybe he had this weird like paranoia that for some reason whoever dissected his brains would learn all of the secrets yeah i mean it was a little bit of that and mostly he just didn't want his body desecrated yeah um and yeah that's the story of h.h H. holmes wow yeah. Sorry, I feel like this episode was like jam-packed full of running around on different dates and stuff like that. Well, you wouldn't be wrong. I mean, it's a four-part series. Yeah, but this episode <laughs> particularly yeah. <laughs> was very like information heavy. Um, That's how I felt anyway. And there's actually even more to it. I'm going to do like a TikTok probably tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do a TikTok about uh, some other like slightly paranormal aspects of it. But this is the factual stuff. Yeah. The stuff that is written in stone. And actually, one thing that I did find as well, as I was going through my, like, internet fucking sleuthing, I never make it past, like, the third page of Google. But I found on findagrave.com, which is a great resource, uh, Benjamin Peitzel's grave. And it has pictures of the whole Peitzel family. Benjamin, Carrie, Desi, Nellie, Alice, Howard, and Baby One. 
That's awful. It's horrific, but it's it's great for context. Like they have they had school pictures. You know yeah. I mean? So they, I mean, I guess it's a good thing because it's like if you were to ever forget that these were were actual living, breathing people with emotions and feelings. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And that that like between that and the investigator at the end, that Frank Geyer guy who like just put his whole heart and soul into it. Yeah. Um. But yeah. That's wow, it. what a dick. Yeah, what a dick. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Let us know if you enjoyed this series. I know it was a girthy one. I'm hoping to get back into some spooky ookies next week. We may end up doing a titillating Tales of Terror just to bide some time and get some like research and stuff like that done. If you enjoyed this series, do think about joining our Patreon. You can also sign up to uh, subscriptions through... I think Spotify or like Anchor, one of them. Somebody does it. Anyway, we have like our friend Jody subscribed to us through there, which is really nice. Um, we appreciate all the support. And otherwise, yeah, if you have any questions about this series specifically, because there's a lot of information that I did leave out, feel free to message us. And if it's like worthy enough, yeah, I'll make like a little video or something about it. Um, But for now, that's the end of HH Homes. And uh yeah, we're going right. to go to Macy's now. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's it, right? Yeah, that's it. Did that episode blow your pants off? It really did. It was a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. All right, guys. We'll see you here next week, someday. I feel like it takes me eight days to make an episode now. Yeah. For some reason. Like, eight days is enough. So, maybe next Monday. I'm going to aim for Sunday. Anyway, that's all. Okay, bye. Okay, bye.